I invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word again in that Old Testament book of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. This Old Testament book bearing the name of its author, or at least the chief contributor of its uh, primary uh, story, Nehemiah. Many scholars think that probably Ezra and Nehemiah may have worked together to, uh, to compile those, these two twin volumes, Ezra and Nehemiah, that kind of detail in brief some of the history of the Jews that returned from exile in Persia back to Jerusalem. In Ezra, of course, we have the story of the rebuilding of the temple uh, there in Jerusalem and the recommitment of God's people to worship him rightly there. And in Nehemiah, the the, the history of how Nehemiah led the people to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And the wall has been completed for some chapters now in Nehemiah, but now we see that, that, that really what was going on in this period of, of God's people's history was less about them building a wall and more about God rebuilding his people. And so in the second half of Nehemiah, that is primarily what we see, God rebuilding his people and in Nehemiah chapter 8, two weeks ago, we saw the, the people gathered together upon the completion of the wall to read the law of God. And in it, they saw a call to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was coming up for them in just a couple of weeks after the beginning of Nehemiah 8 when they read the law. And so they celebrated that Feast of Tabernacles, that Feast of Booths, in the seventh month of their calendar year. A feast that remembered over the course of eight days God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and his provision for them in the wilderness until he brought them to the land where they live. And now in Nehemiah chapter 9, we will see the people of Judah, these returned exiles, committing themselves, resolving themselves to be revived. Resolving themselves to be revived by God. They are seeking revival as a people. And how do they do that? They do it by repenting. And there's a reason that for all of my talking and dreaming and visioning of completing all of the long list of projects that I want to get done on my house, that I have not actually completed any of them. The reason is I simply haven't started the right way. Dreaming about repairing siding has not replaced the siding around my garage. Can you imagine it? Planning and drawing sketches for a shed in my backyard and talking about all of the wonderful things that will go inside it and around it has not actually produced a shed in my backyard. Wonder of wonders, watching YouTube videos on stucco application has not actually filled the cracks or refinished the stucco on my house. Even comparing the prices of bathtubs between different home improvement stores has not really even <laughs> begun to remodel my bathroom. At the end of the day, projects don't get completed without starting. We know this. Church this morning, I dare to say that we, and when I say we, I mean we, myself included, for all of our talking and all of our dreaming and all of our visioning about revival and about spiritual awakening in our church and in our community, that we don't actually see it because we haven't actually started. We haven't actually taken the most crucial first step in starting to pursue a movement of God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see the Jews in Jerusalem gathering together after the Feast of Booths is completed to repent of their sins and to renew their faithfulness to God both publicly and corporately. They make the first step in revival. This truth, and it's our main idea this morning from Nehemiah 9, 
should bear significance. It should be on the forefront of our minds this morning. Revival does not come without repentance. I'll say that again. Revival does not come without repentance. This morning, as this truth becomes plainly clear and obvious to us from Nehemiah 9, I'm going to invite us to to begin to do the painful work, but the very, very good work of recognizing and repenting of sin that God may revive our hearts with a deep and abiding passion for the gospel, love for Jesus Christ, care for our neighbors, that the hope of Jesus Christ would, would be fanned into flame in us and light like a tinderbox the neighborhoods that surround us. I want to give you fair warning this morning. Normally after I conclude preaching on a Sunday morning, we'll have a prayer and a word of benediction, a passage from God's word as we're dismissed to go, and today we're going to do things a little bit differently. After I finish opening or preaching from God's word today, I'm going to call us to respond to God's word the way that his word leads us to respond today, which is by repenting. And so after I'm done preaching, I'll, I'll pray a, a, a prayer that will help us to begin that thought of, re, uh, that, that action of repentance. And then uh, there will be some music that will play softly just through the speakers. We won't have a formal benediction. I won't even say you're dismissed because I don't know what you may need to do, how you may need to respond, and for how long you may need to respond to the Lord this morning. And I know that some of us, this being Father's Day, we may have commitments to have lunch or something like that with our fathers or grandfathers or whatever the case may be. And perhaps you'll need to, you'll need to go as soon as the, the sermon is completed. But for many of you, you probably have plans, quite honestly, that could be pushed back a little bit today. You could make a call. You could step out and make a call. You could send a text message to those that you uh, need to meet later to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be a little bit late. I'm going to do some work with God at church this morning. So I just want to let you know that that's how we're going to close today, by with an open invitation for repentance. And I'm going to stay here as long this morning as we need to, really, for all of us to, to respond to God the way that His Word is calling us. Revival does not come without repentance. So let us prepare to do the painful but very, very good, very, very good work of recognizing and turning from sin so that God may revive our hearts. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading his word, Nehemiah 9, beginning in verses 1 through 5. Nehemiah continues, he says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the seventh month, the holiest month on the calendar of Israel, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, three hours. For another quarter, another three hours of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is God's word. You may be seated. Revival does not come without repentance. 
And the people of Israel demonstrate for us, these, these Judahite returnees from exile, demonstrate first to us in verses 1 through 5 that worship, genuine worship, leads to repentance. A recognition of the worthiness of God, the glory of God, praising Him for all of His infinite perfections, leads to a recognition of our sinfulness and need to turn from sin. Chapter 9, we know, is just a continuation of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. In fact, the, the chapters are sort of superimposed later. Nehemiah would have been read as just one continuing narrative. But we recall that after gathering together to hear the law on the first day of the seventh month in chapter 8, the people all began to mourn their past sin. Reading the law, they, they begin to recognize their patterns of sinfulness, and they begin mourning. And Ezra and Nehemiah both step in and interrupt the people and say, Whoa, 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 today's not a day for fasting, today's a day for feasting. The Feast of Booths is coming up, and so we need to celebrate the goodness and provision of God. So don't mourn today, today rejoice. And they do rejoice, they do bless and praise the Lord for eight days over the course of the Feast of Booths. But now that the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles is over... The people go back to their initial attitude and recommitment to confess and repent of their sin. The feasting is done, and now is the day for fasting and repenting. Verse 2 tells us that the people of Israel separated themselves on this day from those who were in Jerusalem but who were not Jews. The confession that's about to take place by the people is a matter between God and His covenant people. And their confession, the confession of sin by the covenant people of God, is going to serve as an example for those who are outside the covenant with God of what life with God looks like. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of turning from sin and trusting in Him. So for half the day, for six hours, two quarters of the day, they read the law and make confession. It's important for us to note that this day is planned and scheduled. They, were, they, they intended to do this. But the day is anything but formulaic or ritualistic. Reading the law of God for three hours, Genesis through Deuteronomy, may sound like drudgery to many, but not for those who have come to understand the life-giving, people-creating, covenant-sustaining power of that word. Yes, confessing sin and worshiping for three hours may sound like a bore to some of us who would much rather spend those three hours watching a football game or NBA playoffs. But for those who know that there is forgiveness and grace from God, for those who confess their sin and rely on Him who is merciful and kind to sinners in need, three hours confessing sin and rejoicing is a joy. It is a pleasure. It is a delight. We're told that the people confess not only their sins, but also the sins of their fathers. Did you see that? Now, you may be asking or thinking, Pastor, I remember somewhere in the Bible where God says that fathers will not be held guilty for the sins of their sons, and, sin, and sons won't be held guilty for the sins of their fathers. And you're right, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says that. So if that's the case, if sons are not guilty for the sins of their fathers, why are these Israelites, why are these Judahites, why are they confessing the sin of their fathers? If they're not guilty for them, it is because the collective and, and generational confession that takes place here in Nehemiah 9, it demonstrates an acknowledgement in the hearts and the minds of God's people that those past actions, the sins of their fathers, that they were actually sins and they were actually wrong. They look to the past and they do not excuse the faults of their fathers. 
Even if the previous generations did not take notice of their sin, it's never wrong, dear friends, for descendants who are sharing in maybe the earthly or generational consequences for sin to recognize the sin that brought them to that point. The purpose in confessing generational sin like this is in order that those who are confessing it would not repeat it. It is good for us to remember the sins of those who have gone before us, not because we share in their guilt unless we share in their guilt, but, but because it's good to remember that those things are wrong. It, it's good to remember before God in our hearts and minds and together as a church that racism is evil, that slavery was an abomination, that abortion is a, a scourge upon unborn children all around the world. Even if we're not complicit in those things, it's never wrong to recognize those are bad and to pray for God's mercy upon us and upon all those who continue to walk in those ways. We're told here that the people are led in worship by the Levites. I won't torture you by reading all of their names again, but the Levites who stand before the people on the stair of the Levites there at the rebuilt temple. They stand in front of the people, and their job is to lead the people in worship, to lead them in repentance, to help give them words to their hearts of repentance that day. Worship, they've been worshiping for eight days during the Feast of Booths. Worship of God, reading of his word, leads to repentance. Don't miss this morning that after rejoicing in the provision and kindness of God for a week plus one day, the people of Judah recognize the importance of seeking right relationship with God. And it doesn't come apart from recognizing our sinfulness before him and turning from it. Friends, our worship should not always only be rejoicing. Time for mourning sin and repenting, both privately and publicly, is always appropriate and sometimes necessary. It's good when we come together on Sundays to rejoice in the grace of God, to, to celebrate His goodness and His mercy, as we've done in song this morning, to praise Him that He is Lord, that He is King over us. It is good to rejoice in the presence of God and with the saints. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But sometimes we have it in our, our minds that, that Sunday morning is only for happy time. Sunday morning is only for being happy with God's people. It is for that. But dear friends, Sunday morning also needs to be a time where we are able and comfortable to mourn our sin before a holy God. Recognizing His holiness, recognizing His grace, recognizing His mercy and His love and His justice and His kindness ought to lead us to reflect upon how we have scorned those things and rebelled against God, and it should lead us to mourn our sin and turn from it. Worship leads to repentance. But the story goes on. Follow along from verse 6 through 15. This is the confession that the Levites lead the people in. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. And you made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. 
and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Worship leads to repentance, yes. And repenters remember God's goodness. Repenters remember God's goodness. As the people here in verses 6 through 15 begin their confession, it doesn't sound like what many of our confessions of sin sound like today. Usually when we confess sin, we just go right into whatever it was that we did that was against God's design for our life as we walk with Christ. Their confession, though, begins with history. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest recorded summary of the people of Israel's history in all of the Old Testament outside of the actual telling of that history. And their repentance begins with remembering God's goodness. Do you see this? Verse 6, the people recall the goodness of God in creation, that by his own power he made everything that is seen and unseen, that by that same power he preserves all things. And God did not only create the universe, but God also created a people. The Jews here remember that they are a people precisely because God called a man, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And and God covenanted with Abraham to make him his namesake, to make him the father of many nations. They remember how God found Abraham faithful, reminding and calling to their own minds, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that Abram believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. Notice that the people of Israel began as a people of faith in their father, Abraham. And and in their confession, they remember the faithful, promise-keeping, righteous God who counted their trust in him as righteousness, as right relationship with him. They remember more than Abraham, don't they? They remember also the goodness of God to their ancestors in Egypt. Verses 9 through 15 recall the salvation story that began everything for the people of Israel, for the Hebrews, when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And more that this good and powerful God brought them to Mount Sinai where they received the law that God gave through his servant Moses so that they might, by living according to this law, live in right relationship with their holy and saving God, the one who delivered them from Egypt with a strong hand and a mighty arm. And they remind themselves once more, just as they had during the Feast of Booths, that God provided miraculously for them as they wandered in the wilderness until the Lord brought them into the promised land. Repenters remember the goodness of God. Dear friend, when you consider your, friend, your sins, do you remind yourself of the goodness and power of God? Before jumping into confession of all that you know, all that the Holy Spirit is convicting, of you, uh, convicting you of, do you remind yourself of the goodness and power of God? We must remember to do this. It is good for us to remember God's goodness when we repent. Indeed, if God is not good, if God is not powerful to forgive, 
What good does confession and repentance do? It is good and right when we bring our sin to God to remember that while we were faithless, He was faithful. And that just as God made a covenant with Abraham, so also has He made a greater covenant through His Son, Jesus Christ, to save, not just from slavery in foreign lands, but to save from sin everyone who comes to Him by relying upon Christ's righteousness, which has been substituted for their own. Brothers and sisters, remember God's goodness and His power to forgive this morning. Their confession goes on further, though. In verses 16 through 31, we get the, the meat of their confession. And in this meat of their confession, we have this back and forth between this oscillation between the sin of the people and God's response to their sin. How do you think He responds most of the time? With grace, surprise. We have this oscillation between the sin of the people and the grace of God, the sin of the people and the mercy of God, the sin of the people and the covenant kindness of God toward them. See if you can observe the oscillation between sin and, and, and God's grace here. Verse 16, But they, our ancestors, those that you brought out of Egypt, and our fathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck like a mule or a, an ox who's stubbornly not going where he wants to go, where he's meant to go, stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Sin, but see God's response. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Friend, if you have a pencil or a pen or a highlighter, highlight the second half of Nehemiah 9.17. Call this out to your attention. This is a declaration of the character of God, one that's repeated, not just, not, not, not just mentioned here, but repeated in several places throughout the Old Testament, that God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, who does not forsake those who he has called by his name. Sin in the stiffened necks of the people. Grace in God's kind response. Sin, again, in verse 18. Even when your people, our fathers, made for themselves a golden calf. For Exodus 32, you remember this episode. And said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And it committed great blasphemies. Blasphemies of saying that our God is represented by this golden cow. And this is the one that led us out of Egypt. Not the invisible, all-powerful God that delivered us with a strong hand and mighty arm. But this gold cow. Great sin. Grave sin. And God's response in verse 19. You and your great mercies. Even when they did this. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. Forty years you sustained these blasphemers of your name in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And... You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as, stars of the hev uh, as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of their land that they might do with them as they would. 
And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and sassy. That's not in there. Became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The people sin by stiffening their necks. God responds with kindness and mercy. The people by sin by building a golden calf, saying that that is God. And God responds by continuing to take them into the promised land that he promised to give them. How do the people respond to God's goodness, to his grace, to his provision? Read with me in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Sin again. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Here we're getting into the period of the judges, that period after the people of Israel had entered into the promised land where we see, and you can read this in the book of Judges, this long downward spiral of worse and worse sinfulness of the people of Israel going further and further against God and away from Him. And in the time of their suffering, verse 27 continues, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. Suffering that was brought on by their own sin, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, how many times have we seen that already? You gave them saviors, judges, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. The people sin by the spiral downward away from God. God responds by sending them people to bring them back to him and to, to rescue them from their enemies. How do the people respond to God's grace? You guessed it, by sinning again. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned to you and cried to you, here we have an oscillation back to grace once again. When they turned to you and cried to you, you heard from heaven. As many times you delivered them according to your mercies. There it is again. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. When the people sin, God is merciful. And he warns them, don't go back. I brought you again to myself. I've turned you back to me again. Don't go back to sin. And what did the people do? They go back to sin. Yet they acted presumptuously, verse 29 says, and they did not obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules, which if a person does, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. To these disobedient, stubborn, stiff-necked people, what does God do? Verse 30, many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of their lands. Nevertheless, one more time, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. In the meat of the confession of the people of Israel on this 24th day of the seventh month, we see that not only do repenters remember the goodness of God, but repenters also recognize patterns of sin. They recognize patterns of sin. We have this back and forth, this oscillation in the history of the people who are confessing of sin and God's grace and disobedience and rebellion and God's mercy and turning from God's law and God's covenant faithfulness. Back and forth, sin and grace. Repenters recognize patterns of sin. Christian, 
when you confess sin before God, are you made aware of patterns of sin in your past? Do you catch on to how this has happened before? Or are your confessions just for the sins of the moment? Do you fall into that terrible new age philosophy that says, just live in the moment, live for today, and not recognize the history of your sin and God's response with grace and mercy and patience and kindness toward you? Listen, it is good and right to recognize patterns of sin in our lives. For, for when we do, we may find by God's help that there are certain situations and certain temptations that have made us especially prone to sin. And thus, by seeing these patterns, recognizing them, calling them for what they are, we are made better able with God's help to resist them in the future. Brothers, when you confess your sins of lust or have looking at internet pornography, do you call to your mind patterns of doing that in the past and what happened then and what led you into that temptation? What warnings of God you did not heed? What escape routes that God provided in his grace that you did not take? Do you recall those things to your mind so that you might not repeat them again? More still, when we rehearse these patterns of sin and God's grace, our disobedience and God's kindness, it gives us cause to celebrate, to celebrate the unending mercy of God to helpless sinners every time they repent. If you see anything in the meat of the confession of the Jews in Nehemiah 9, see this. God is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love who in his great mercy does not make an end of his people or forsake them because he is a gracious and a merciful God. We sing a song that reminds us of the unending mercy of God. It's a song that I hope you know by now. It's a newer hymn, but we've sung it enough. It's a song called His Mercy is More. The first verse goes this way. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, God counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, the chorus goes. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, stronger than the darkest corner of your sinful heart, new and full every morning. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is still more. Hear this, friend. Nothing and no one can exhaust the mercy and grace of God. There is no sinner so corrupt, no sinner so dark, no sinner so far from God that he in his mercy cannot reach if they'll simply repent and turn to him. Amen. Dear friend, are you burdened by the awareness of your rebellion against God? As you think upon past patterns of sin, is your soul weighed down by the conviction or guilt that comes from that? No, this morning there is rest at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ who died to bear your sin. Friend, are you frightened that the number and the kind of your sins that are in your past and in your heart today may be too much or of the sort that God could not forgive? I invite you to look with all confidence to, to the confidence of the Jews in Nehemiah. For all the cycles of sin in their history, God had not forsaken them. 
If ever there were a people who God had every right, and he does have every right, to forsake because he gave them clear knowledge of himself, gave them clear laws and statutes to live by, and yet they rebelled anyway. If ever there was a person that God could have forsaken and been just and right to do so, it was the Jews in the Old Testament who time and time and time again looked God square in the face and said, we'd rather do it our way. And how does he respond? With grace, with mercy compassion, with calls to repent, with covenant and faithful love time and time and time again. Friend, for all the depth of your own sin, for all of the long history of your own rebellion against God, if you will simply come in faith and a desire to follow Jesus as Lord, he will not forsake you. Your sins may be many. Mine are. Your sins may be dark. Friend, if you knew the corners of my heart where the light of the gospel has yet to shine in all of its full glory, you would be disgusted. Your sins may be many, as are mine, but praise God, his mercy is so much more. Worship leads to repentance. Repenters remember the goodness and the power of God. Repenters recognize past patterns of sin. And yet the day is not finished in Nehemiah 9. The people go on in verse 32. They say, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship that we have been through, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Finally, in Nehemiah 9, we see that repenters not only recognize past patterns of sin from their fathers and those who have gone before, even in their own lives, but... They also recognize personal sin. They recognize the sins of their own heart. In this last paragraph of Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah records a shift in the language of the repenters from they and them to us and our. Now they're getting really personal with this confession. First, the Jews recognize here in verse 32 the greatness, the might, the awesomeness, the covenantal love of God not just to their forefathers, not just to their ancestors, but also to these exiles who have returned from Persia themselves. And they pray to God to ask him not to look lightly upon all of the affliction that they have been through because of past generational disobedience until the present day. It's like saying, God, even for all of our people's disobedience, even for all of their idolatry, and for all of our pain and hardship because of it, do not consider our suffering as little in your sight, but see that your discipline upon your people has brought us to repentance. 
All that you allowed for our discipline was just and righteous. It was deserved. You were right in doing that. And even at that, God, you were gracious still in not giving us everything that we deserved. And so it is their own sin that they confess. Yes, they admit their kings, their princes, their priests, their fathers disobeyed for generations prior. But as verses 36 and 37 note, it is because of the present generation, generation's sin that they are under the thumb of the Persians living as tenants in their own land. Don't miss this this morning. Repenters repent of personal sin. Now, we can recognize and mourn the sins of our fathers, the sins of generations past. And we can choose personally to determine not to repeat those past sins. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we do not turn from our own personal sin, there will not be a reception for us by God. If we do not repent of sins that we have committed, there is not a reception for us by God. This much is true. And I say this with confidence. God loves sinners. If you're a sinner this morning, that's good news for you. God loves sinners. But God only saves a certain kind of sinner, a repenting one. God's grace and mercy only extends to those who realize they need it and receive it by faith. God loves sinners, but His salvation only extends to those who are repenting. The sins of others against you may harm you physically and emotionally. That much is true. But only your own sin, dear friend, is separating you from being right with God. The sins of your fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, generations before you, politicians that are ruling and governing over you, their sins do not separate you from God. Yours do. My sins are what had separated me from God. My own pursuit of rebellion against God was what separated me from right relationship with Him. What the Judahites in Nehemiah 9 demonstrate so well for us, and we must realize for ourselves, is that more than moral posturing against the sins of others... We need a posture of humility before God for our own sin. More than calling out the sins in the lives of others, more than condemning the sins of the society that we live in, more than waxing poetically about the sins of the past, we need a posture of humility ourselves because of our own sin. Repenters recognize and turn from their own personal rebellion against God. The whole day, here on the 24th day of the seventh month in Nehemiah 9, the whole day, the whole process is sealed with a written covenant, we read. This is not a covenant like God made with Abraham. That was a covenant that God made with Abraham. This now is a covenant that God's people are making to him. They recognize that in their past and even in their present moment, they have been unfaithful to the promises that God had given to them. So they say, God, you've been faithful. You've kept your word. You've kept your covenant, but we've broken our end of it so we're covenanting again together. Publicly and corporately, we're writing it down to hold ourselves accountable. We are going to be a people resolved to be revived by your spirit as we turn from our sin. What comes next in Nehemiah then, in chapters 10 and 11 through the rest of the book. Now, 
Now listen, their repentance is not complete or total. Their revival is not, not, total, not, not entirely finished yet. Uh, there are still yet some sins to be dealt with in the course of Nehemiah. We'll see those in the weeks to come. But what comes next in Nehemiah is a genuine revival, a, a, an awakening, a reawakening of faith and trust in God by his people. A revival that is marked by renewed vigor to rely upon God and to live as his people. This much is clear this morning, church. Revival does not come without repentance. Inflamed passions for the gospel, a new and fresh love for Jesus, and strength by the Spirit does not come apart from recognizing the sins of our heart and asking God for renewed forgiveness. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, call to mind the sins that you have not yet confessed to God and not yet turned from. Yes, Christian, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to us. These are God's people in Nehemiah, his covenant people, repenting of sin. How is it ever wrong for his new covenant people by faith in Christ to repent of sin as well? If we agree, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, that God saves repenting sinners and he does it by our faith in him, we cannot assume or ever act like we are beyond our daily need for ongoing repentance. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said all of the Christian life is repentance. Every day turning from sin and self to trust Christ. Grieving our sin is a good thing. And I'm not talking about the sins of others. Talking about the sins of our own hearts. Grieving our sin is a good thing. Mourning our sin, confessing it to God, is meant to produce an eagerness within us to turn with renewed faith in Jesus. Scripture is clear. It is repentance from sin and genuine reliance upon Jesus Christ that leads to salvation. There is no other way to the Father but by faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is you don't have to get yourself cleaned up. You don't have to get rid of all your sinful habits before you trust in Jesus. You need simply a posture of humility and repentance in your heart, recognizing your sin and that you don't want to go back to it, but rather to turn in faith and trust in a holy God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness to all who call upon him in faith by trusting his son, Jesus, who gave his life to bear our sins. And as we trust in him, gives us his righteousness to make us right with God. Having begun this way, church, how can we justify any going back to embracing and ignoring sin as we walk with Christ? Grieving sin is a godly grief that leads to life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. When you turn from your sin, not trying to fix yourself, but simply turning your back on it and turning your face to God in faith, there is no regret there. God will not hold your sin over you. He will not call you to fix the sins of your past. He says simply, trust my son, come to me, I'll clean you up. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. If you're grieving your sin without faith in Christ, without any sort of repentance or without any God, to repent to, or never recognizing that God is ready to receive you if you repent, that grief for your sin only produces death. It only adds condemnation to your past sins because you've not turned to have those sins paid for by the death of Christ. So this morning, 
exercise godly grief. It leads to repentance and salvation without regret. Friends, this much is clear from Nehemiah 9. Revival never comes apart from repentance. And we can talk about revival. We can pray for revival. We can dream about revival. We can plan a revival, whatever that means. However you tell God, however it is that you can tell God what you're go what's going to happen. It will not take place, though, unless we take the first necessary step of repenting. That's my call to us this morning. In a moment, I'm going to pray a, a prayer that will, I pray, uh, stoke our hearts to repent. It's a prayer from the Puritan Matthew Henry. You've probably read some of his Bible commentaries before. I would ask that you would make this the prayer of your heart as we begin our response this morning. And as I close this prayer, that's what we're going to do. We're going to move into a time of response. You may need to move out of your seats, put feet to the, the posture of your heart this morning. You may need to come and kneel at these steps that are up here. Now, I promise you there's nothing magical about these steps. But, but there is something to putting, putting feet to our intentions, moving out of your seat. Maybe you'll need to kneel where you are. Maybe you need to find space to lay on your face before God in humbleness and repentance for sins that you know you need to confess to Him and repent of. Christian, I'm talking to us this morning. If we want revival, we must begin with repentance. This morning, you stay as long as you need to. I'll stay as long as you need me to. If you need to go to meet family obligations this morning, I understand that. I won't judge you for stepping out early. I would only ask you to, to try to go quietly and, and, uh, and without disturbing others around you. Brothers and sisters, you may need to turn to people that, that you walk in life in Christ with this morning. Maybe other brothers or other sisters that, are in your Wednesday, that were in your Wednesday night grow groups this last semester. Maybe people that you've been in Bible study groups with before. Maybe you need to come and talk with me, confess sin, and begin repenting of it this morning. Whatever we need to do, however God is calling us to respond, let's do it without delay. Let's, let's respond in faith and obedience to God. Let us not walk away from an opportunity to repent of sin and experience the power of God for reviving our souls, for strengthening our ministry, for galvanizing our resolve to live as gospel people in this world. I'm going to pray, and as I conclude, music will come softly over the speakers, and you'll see some scriptures on the screen behind me that will just kind of cycle through that I would encourage you to use to call your own heart to repentance. Pray with me this way.